Welcome to Gola. I'm Katie Parla, a Rome-based food and beverage writer, culinary guide, and cookbook author. And I'm Danielle Caligari, assistant professor of Italian at Dartmouth College and a certified specialist of wine. So we had a really fun Calabria episode. It was chock full of delicious things, potatoes, wine, all the stuff we love. Neonati, which I know you hate the term, <laughs> uh, Sardella. It was great. But our Calabrian adventure didn't end there. Now, granted, this is a Sicily episode, but you can't really divorce these two things, especially if you're in a car and you got to get to Sicily. That's for sure, especially if you're in Katie's car getting to Sicily because our Cinquecento had more adventures than even we did, I think I could say. It got around. Yeah, it had a fun time. It really enjoyed its its trek, which started in Crotone. We stayed overnight at a place right on the beach. It was beautiful. Called Nisi. It was really rad. And I woke up a little early. Well, you probably were up earlier than me with your jet lag, but I woke up early for me and I threw on my bathing suit and I went swimming in the sea, in the center of town. It was rad. Yeah. I loved it. I was, I was, as reported in our uh, last recording, coming off of a trip that started in California and somehow ended up in, in inner Calabria just a, a few short hours and or months later. It was very hard for me to tell a difference. Who knows? <laughs> um, but I, I woke up uh, in the way that I normally do, which is um, pulling my sleep mask off, taking out my earplugs feeling around to figure out where I am, struggling to find a source of light, threw open the Pedisiana, threw open the doors to my balcony, which uh, revealed that I was indeed on the Ionian coast in a beautiful, beautiful, tiny seaside town. I saw a tiny head bobbing in the water. It was probably Katie Parla. It might have been earlier than you were actually swimming. I'm not sure. I was up pretty early that day. I remember I, um, I remember I did some work that morning, which is um, borderline insane, but uh, got out a few <laughs> abstracts for some academic articles. I did a little bit of yoga, and then uh, we were delivered some really fine pastry on the uh, veranda before jumping back in the car to move on to our next destination, La Sicilia. See, I'm just now remembering something. Okay, so first of all, do drive in Calabria, do drive in Sicily, rent the car, Absolutely. have an adventure yeah. for sure. However, if, for example, you're driving from Crotone to Villa San Giovanni to catch the ferry to Sicily, and I don't know, you're driving through a tunnel and you drive over a very large plastic bag, it probably makes sense to ensure that your car has not taken that huge plastic bag on as a passenger for several hours, leading the car to overheat and not not go faster than 30 kilometers an hour. <laughs> well, at a certain point when we were losing speed, we realized that, uh, and th that was what I was alluding to when I meant that the, the Shinkoshento had greater adventures than we did because it worked uh, triple time when we were trying to push it over 160 kilometers an hour while it had no intake. <laughs> yeah, uh, this led to our uh, next encounter with the police. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing, but it really is almost incredible how many times we get pulled over together. <laughs> so, I mean, normally it's in the way that we encountered in Chiral. You're yeah. driving and you're subjected to a random stop. Yeah. The Carabiniere dude has his paddle. It's almost yeah. always a dude. Yes. You know, motions you to pull over. You do your thing. You get held over for way more than you're comfortable <laughs> standing in the street with a stranger. Yeah. And then you're let on your way. 
what rarely happens <laughs> is a cop puts the lights on yeah. and then indicates at high speed to pull over. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, Urgently, oh, my God, yeah. what is going on? Like, yeah. what is happening? And we pull over and the guy's like, you have a huge plastic <laughs> bag on the front of your car? <laughs> you have a, a, a tarp that is designed to protect um, you, I mean, huge vehicles from falling debris. <laughs> yeah. When I say plastic bag, I'm yeah. not talking about a grocery bag. This I'm talking not... about like a thick, like, you know, like a yeah, quarter like... inch thick piece of yeah. plastic yeah. that's used world, to wrap. World PVC. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So that had been blocking the air intake for uh, 160 kilometers. Yeah. Uh, we take it off. Yeah. We're not obviously going to throw it on the side of the road because that's no, not what we do. No. So we put it in the back of the car. So now the, the front and the back of the car stink of plastic mm-hmm. that has been burning plastic virtually on fire. Right. <laughs> uh, and then we're on our way. And pretty soon we are in line, queued up with a bunch of other cars to get on the ferry to Sicily. If you've seen a map of the south of Italy, you might know. As you do, if you haven't seen it, pull it up. Google it right now. The internet is in your hands, no doubt. <laughs> take a look. Uh, there's about a two-mile stretch uh, minimum. It's a little bit further in some in some areas between Sicily and uh, in Calabria. Um, on my first trip to Sicily, I just assumed that there was a freaking bridge. Nope. Sure isn't. No, sure isn't. I mean, money had been assigned to build a bridge. They could have built many, many bridges for the number of lira and then euros that were designated for that project. But safe to say they were not applied to that project properly. And now you just get on a boat and it's kind of lit because as soon as you get on the boat, everyone beelines it to the bar where you eat a big, like, three-pound arancino. Yeah. And then by the time you're done with it, you're already in Sicily. It's the quickest, most efficient public transport in the land. It's actually incredible how uh, streamlined it is. The Strait of Messina is close enough that you could swim across it if it weren't for the fact that it has some extremely dangerous currents that make it uh, difficult to navigate, um, even for relatively large craft. But these ferries are back and forth all day, every day, very quick, very comfortable, and filled with some of the most delicious uh, street food you could possibly ask for. You will hear people arguing over whether you call it an arancino or an arancina. That depends on whether you are on the occidental or oriental side of the Sicilian island. And it really doesn't matter because they're so good and there's so little time for you to eat them because you are already on the Sicilian side by the time you get the last of that rice ball in your mouth. I'm starving. I know. This is not a good time for us to be talking about this. But guess what? The next thing we're going to talk about is eating more and drinking more. It's true. I mean, the silver lining is that we're recording in Prati, which is home to many, many Sicilian forward. That's true. Tavole calde. That is true. true. Anyway, that's good. (laughs) Everyone's like, please stop talking about what you're going to eat for lunch. I know, right? Uh, So we get to Sicily. It is a gorgeous day and we are bound for a place that I normally wouldn't prioritize in my Sicily visit, Taormina. Now, let me explain. I didn't like Taormina before. (gasps) Katie. I know. So, you know, like the Amalfi Coast, it is objectively beautiful. It also was literally developed with foreign, wealthy foreign tourists in mind. So to say that, oh, you don't like it because it's not authentic, it's authentic to itself. It is exactly what it was designed to be, which is a hub for people to stay in really fine five-star accommodations and sort of hunker down and do maybe a a day trip to Mount Etna here or there, but not to really sort of uh, 
dive deep into Sicilian culture. I'm more of like Palermo, feed me like street food all day. I want, you know, extra, uh, extra grease on my Melsa sandwich. Um, I want to like be lost. I want to not know where I am. I don't want to hear English the entire time. Now, in June... 2021. Yeah. I had to like dig for like I know. I for a hot second I was like check this is quickly check the G calendar. Okay. Yeah. Um it's empty. There's no one around. And we stay at a really lovely place, literally built into the Taormina city walls called the Medusa. Um, it's a buddy of our friend John from Amunini Vinis with whom we were traveling. Um, and it was just it was lovely. It was an empty town. Well, I shouldn't say empty. A lot of the people who live in Taormina foreign and otherwise, full-time, were there, living it up, enjoying their town before whenever tourism fully yeah, it returns. descends completely, Exactly. Yeah. So it was incredible. Like, the beach that we visited was totally, well, virtually empty for the season. Uh, the water was pristine. Um, and I, I just really enjoyed it. So I, I had a spectacular time seeing. I, um, again, I think on the larger spectrum, I probably have a little more patience for areas that are over-touristed than you, um, largely because I don't live here full-time anymore. And also um, because I don't make my living from being in places that are over-touristed all the time. So you, your patience has been worn thinner than mine, but Teormina is not a place that I would put on the list. Sicily has so many spectacularly beautiful beaches. It's, you know, the kind of decision where you say, why well, go there and fight for space and get overcharged for things when I could choose another place that is um, equally beautiful and a little bit quieter and makes it feel a little bit more to myself. Teormina this year was all of the things. It had There was nothing that you could have asked more for. And the very first thing that we did when we got there was go to a friend's seaside restaurant, eat a pile of beautiful, perfectly grilled scampi overlooking the small gulf there. And I, I, I mean, I think we both, the only thing that was stressing us out was how can we do everything we want to at once, which is eat everything in sight, drink everything that's near us, jump in the water, explore the ancient center of the city, drive around more of the coastline. I mean, it really was one of those moments where I, I, I think I, I think we, I can speak for both of us when I say we were newly, freshly excited about something that, that we had become a little bit jaded about. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's always nice to eat shrimp and scampi in proximity to a the thousand euro minimum a night hotel <laughs> that you'll never never be able to afford. It's yeah. a humbling experience. So, <laughs> but you know, in in fact, I think traveling during this I don't even know what you would call this period because we're still fully in a pandemic. Yeah. But traveling when it's allowed, yeah. when some people are moving around, um, is really I think. A reminder that Italy in general will have to reckon with the absolutely uncontrolled tourism to its major destinations, Taormina, Venice, Florence. You know, Rome is a huge city. It can absorb the number yeah. of visitors that come here. But the Vatican, it's it's actually offensive to visit the Vatican during high season. And they've managed, especially over the past five years, to wedge more people into that building than ever before a set of structures that has 16th century doorways, yeah. not intended for tens of thousands of visitors, touching, sweating, doing all the things. So, you know, I think uh, I'd love to believe 
that this moment in time will cause people to reflect on how their presence and the presence of the tens of thousands or millions of others in a place impacts the place long term. But I actually am not super optimistic that that's going to be the result of this period. But we're getting into dark territory (laughs) when, in fact, the subject is dark territory. (laughs) Mount Etna is a black, stone-rich, volcanic, magical terrain. So I think we should call this episode Dark Territory. Okay, well, we got it. And that maybe that'll be a shirt as well, because guess what? One of the other things that's on the horizon is some Gola merch. So that's uh, that's a little Easter egg here for while we're uh, anyone who's listening, looking out for what's coming up. Um, we did not just go to Termina because we wanted to look at beautiful things and eat delicious things, although that was a lovely uh, silver lining. On the contrary, we were there for the same reason we had driven to Calabria, which is to visit some of the winemakers and uh, subregions of the territory that are expressing the place, the history, the culture, as we are always looking for. And we couldn't have had a better guide. By the way, we spend a lot of time in our last episode, and we'll no doubt in this one as well, continue suggesting that everything was sort of unfolding at at, at our whim or as, uh, as things presented themselves. But of course, our friend John actually had made a lot of really careful plans for us. And no matter how many times he told us exactly what we were going to do and when and facilitated all of it, we could kept acting both surprised and confused along the way and asking again and again what was happening. (laughs) I can't remember a goddamn thing. (laughs) My brain was a total sieve at that point, being, you know, under uh, having not nearly enough sleep and and just... um, in general, uh, overwhelmed and and, uh, underrested. But we had not only some excellent meals to get started with, but some great conversations with people there who explained to us what was happening in terms of the development of this area that has changed radically in a lot of ways recently. So Termina, as you mentioned already, Katie, is a place that is very much on the map, obviously. I think anyone who's listening to this podcast certainly has heard of it and probably quite a lot about it. Many people will have even visited it and uh, have enjoyed the the beautiful parts of it that we mentioned and and maybe been a little bit annoyed by the um the uh, overpopulation tourist wise uh, that they've encountered if they've gone during high season especially um but uh the other side of this is the Etna region for winemaking again not new and not a place that only just became developed or known uh, but uh unlike Teormina Etna wines have become uh, huge just recently, more or less, I think, yeah. if we look at like kind of a longer timeline there. Yeah. I mean, when we're talking about the Sicilian timeline, it's a pretty extensive one. And yeah. while other parts of Italy saw their, for lack of a better term, modern wine culture develop, Sicily was doing a ton of trade hundreds of years ago at the same time that Piemontese and uh, Tuscan wines were traveling around uh, around Europe and the globe. So it's, you know, I think if we want to if we want to sort of pick the genesis of the modern wine movement in Mount Etna, we've got to look at 1988 when Giuseppe Benanti mm-hmm. um, uh, founded or sort of refounded uh, a family vineyard. This is a very noble man who saw great potential in the Caricante white grape that grows on an erupting volcano. Yeah. 
So I can't stress enough, Mount Etna is a dynamic place that is erupting (laughs) at virtually all times. There have been 30 significant eruptions since the year 2000, um, and uh, about 300 minor eruptions or sort of like gas releases from the various vents on the volcano. It's one of the tallest peaks in Italy. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's more than 3,000 meters above sea level to the top of the tallest crater. There are five craters. It takes hours to drive around this thing. If you've seen Mount Vesuvius, imagine something that is three times taller and way, way, way more powerful. Yeah, it's it is uh, interesting to be in the presence of a, a, a volcano like that. If you've driven around Italy or other uh, places with volcanic activity, you kind of think you know you you know what it feels like or what it looks like. But Etna has a kind of um, a more uh, a spookier, more threatening presence uh, that is exciting and and is especially interesting when it comes to winemaking potential and grape growth there. But it's also threatening in a real way. And in fact, while we were there, uh, Etna was smoking and getting ready to erupt. And we drove down at the end of the day uh, after our second day there, and uh, it began erupting very shortly after we got off of the mountain. So if... <laughs> I mean, there was real, like, significant amounts of lava flowing in the spaces that we had just been walking around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Etna um, is a volcano that has many different types of eruptions. The one that I've seen, I would say a solid 75% of the times that I've visited Etna is the Strombolian eruption. Mm-hmm. Well, not quite Strombolian, um, because it's not like a huge amount that's like really happening. It just looks so crazy and intense from a distance. But the lava shoots up into the air and falls, which is much safer than the, I think it's called the Hawaiian eruption, where the lava just sort of like oozes and covers everything in its path. Um, Of course, go to Etna to drink wine and to experience some of that, but also drive up to the hiking trails. And as you go, you'll actually see the roofs of houses sticking out of lava flows from the 1980s when one of those really devastating flows covered a, b- a big chunk of of the inhabited area. yeah exactly yeah. yeah and i think you know this is important to point out not just because it's kind of wild and uh, interesting to hear um and not even just because it also is a a piece of an important piece of the context for understanding the wine here, um, but also because it is protected territory. It is a natural uh, space that has been appreciated not just for the incredible volcanic soil that then produces uh, grapes that have wines expressing unexpected things there, but also because it's a place that has incredible wildlife and uh, all manner of other things happening that you, I, I don't I don't think many people appreciate that if you haven't visited it. I, while we were there, there were many things that were pointed out to us that even I didn't know, even having been there, um, because, you know, pe- the we were uh, privy to 
a series of uh, friends and guides who have or who are uh, from and of the region, and but also have a special attention for the, the the nature there and what has been taken away and what is now returning as a result of the uh, reevaluation of that space uh, because of the wine. So there's a, a an important dialogue happening between the development of enogastronomic tourism and of the kind of greater enological scene there alongside what uh, that what that space can give more broadly absolutely so you know what does it feel like to be on an erupting volcano packed with vineyards it is it's a pretty magical experience and you start to encounter the vineyards at about 350 meters above sea level as you're following this really a, a, a pretty narrow road that connects the northern villages of Mount Etna and most of the wine production uh, in the volcano is on the northern slopes, northern and, and a bit on the eastern slopes. So we drove, did we drive the Chinguicha? No. no. John drove us in a big-ass Range Rover. Yeah, I'm still no. so jealous. It was we, dope. This is, I mean, this isn't a question of if we thought that would be cute or not. That was like the Cinquecento would have immediately been left to die on the side of Etna. We we drove up to some of the ta- some of the um, highest reachable by vehicle parts of the of the mountain and on roads that were described to us by our friend Ezio who is driving, who's doing most of the driving, um, as not that hard to navigate. And then that was not the way I perceived those roads. <laughs> no, that's inaccurate. Because they weren't roads. They were actually just like... Oh, God, yeah, weed, I know. Like <laughs> weed, pressed down weeds where someone had driven a truck to get up to the vineyards a handful of times, <laughs> yeah, really, because a lot of the spaces we were looking at were newly planted and or newly discovered. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. a combination of those two. So uh, we were not just with our friends uh, John of Amunini Vini and Ezio, uh, who is a wonderful guide and, uh, and and local, but also Rory and Cinzia of Eserici Wines, and so we were exploring in just in their footsteps, in their wake, kind of both literally in the moment, but also, as you're saying, Katie, um, just after them, because a lot of these spaces are places that they have only very, very recently identified and begun to develop as their wine production has expanded and the appreciation for wines from these spaces has expanded. Absolutely. So a lot's happened since 1988. Yeah. And can kind of link it to the place where Eserici is based, Solichiata, mm-hmm. which is not far from Randazzo. It's not, not quite at Randazzo. But Solichiata is a word you might have seen on the bottles of Frank Cornelison wines. So while, while Benanti comes with this very noble, classic winemaking uh, sensibility, Frank Cornelison was a very dynamic, experimental winemaker, originally from Belgium, who put Etna on the map for other types of wine drinkers, people interested in wines that were exploring all different types of production methods. He's very well known for his fiberglass uh, containers um, and wines that are just like volcano juice in a way, like just really super interesting, different expressions of the main grapes on the volcano Caricante in the white category, Norello Mascalese, and to a lesser extent, Norello Capucho in the red category. So, you know, of course, uh, if you're a natural wine drinker, Frank Cornelison is this kind of legend. And like so many people on the volcano, 
uh, SRHE included, started with a small number of, of parcels distributed through var- various contrade. So think of, you know, think of the volcano as having villages, sub-villages, and then subplots within those villages. So every every like corner has its own name. There's like Pirao, Barbabeki. Um I forget the other ones. There are a lot. Of- <laughs> <laughs> okay. We have the volas, but we got to uh see those plots and then taste the wine made from them. So again, you know, talking about understanding the the process in a in this narrative way and seeing both the thought of the winemaker, the uh, changes in the, uh, not just things like, so, you know, I, f- I feel like a lot of people will have the opportunity to go to a winery and have uh, the, you know, a guide or the winemaker themselves say, oh, this is the soil here and these are the kinds of grapes that come out that, and this is the wine we make, period. Okay, great. That's that's great. It's, it's a great way to have a little bit more context. In this case, we were getting a whole, I mean, the, the richness of the story there is, you know, times a million because you're going to, we had our hands and our feet in the soil, but then we're learning about how this developed alongside the things like where people lived, Mm -hmm. why they lived there, how you could get there, why certain kinds of farming were done there, how these vines ended up left behind for one reason or another, um, how they are now being united with newer plantings, how they're being treated and why, um, how the people in this town are changing themselves in response to all of this, right? Because this was an area that is relatively hard to reach, Mm -hmm. you know, again, in the grand scheme of things. And, And now it's getting developed. I mean, the road are in great shape now, right? Yeah, the like, main the main roads are in great shape. Yeah, um, for yeah, sure. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Again, I'm using the word road a little bit too haphazardly here. The road, the, the properly paved roads that go from town to town are in great shape. You can see the people get it. You know, this is becoming a, a more sustainable economy there in a place where agriculture had been the only real point of reference for a long time. And that reminds us of the trajectory of Sicily on not, you know, not even talking about the long, long history, but on a 20th century scale, because, you know, Sicilian wine, like you said, Katie, was famous for a long, long time. And Sicily was known from at least the time of the Greeks, probably before that as a great wine production region. But in the post-war 20th century, after the EU began to, or what would become the EU, began to open up to trade and the must from Italian wine grapes had value and had the ability to be sold on an open market without tariffs, places like Sicily that could overproduce did overproduce. And so Italy became, uh, Italy in general, actually, we can say, but Sicily especially became a place that was just a big bucket of juice, right? That's what all anybody could see there. And so 60s to 80s, it's a place that is just is swimming in low quality, high volume. And places like Etna always had this opportunity. And some pl- people were always there doing something a little bit better, a little bit more special, a little bit more directed. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a recent thing that people there from the late 80s, but even within the last 10 years, because the, the global market has recognized it as a place that can produce it with uh, great sophistication, is now, you know, the the landscape is changing metaphorically yeah. and literally. Right? No, I mean, when you drive through uh, Etna, especially that northern road that connects like Solecchiata and Randazzo, what struck me, I haven't, I haven't been to Etna in a few years. What struck me is how many uh, very contemporary looking 
tasting rooms yeah. slash accommodations had been built on what were either non-existent or very primitive tasting rooms and uh, vineyard headquarters. Yeah. And, you know, there's something that kind of, I think is it's so fascinating because the the sort of the fact that Italy is unified has not changed the social hierarchy in yeah. Sicily much. So generally speaking, the winemakers, the people who actually own the vineyards are often from Catania or clearly have an, a lot for capital investment. So they're able to purchase parcels as they become available. And they rely very, very heavily on those incredible contadini experts, yeah. the the people who, you know, can can see 10 different parcels with 10 radically different terrains yeah. and know exactly how to farm them. And that is, that's information that you cannot study at a university. Uh, that has to be learned uh, through practice. And, you know, we were walking through one of the, the vineyards, I think it was called Derara, mm. and your feet sink, like almost like yeah. you're in snow, your feet sink like four inches into this very powdery terrain. And then meanwhile, you're in another part of... Uh, uh, like in Crassa, mm -hmm. and it's much more pebbly. You can actually see big chunks of basalt. There's a, there's a, a huge difference in drainage potential and the minerality uh, that soil. these bits of okay. these soil. Yeah. I'm like, what? How do you say? Well, um, part, the, yeah. Yeah. the soil imparts, mm -hmm. and so something sort of another theme that that struck me again is, you know, Serechi, like others, start with like three thousand bottle production in 2013 when they're founded, but there's always this annual growth and and quite a significant one. So, you know, within a few years, they're making 13,000 bottles. And then, um, you know, the, the goal is to obviously produce more and more with the limitations that uh, you can't sort of overproduce theoretically. Uh, you can produce as, as much reza or as much mm -hmm. yield per hectare as the Etna doc uh, allows. Uh, but you're also limited to like where you can grow grapes because at the northern part of Etna only has so much terrain. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of uh, a blessing that there's protected area that that means those like oak tree forests and things won't be torn out at least theoretically. Yeah, and be replaced with vines. So you still get this incredible biodiversity, and especially with SHE and other producers who are uh, practicing really um, like either biodynamic or uh, low, uh, low intervention, impact, low intervention, low, low yeah. impact mm -hmm. wine production. They're not. Uh, spraying pesticides between the vines, leaving like nothing in their wake, right? You've, you're walking through the vineyards and you're stepping on literally hundreds of different types of uh, wild grains and legumes and weeds and herbs. And it's the coolest salad ever. It's really, it's really super special. So I thought, you know, that I was sort of struck by those, by those things, like the, the real like reinforcement of the, the sort of landed noble, skilled, uh, farmer mm -hmm. uh, symbiosis and just the 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 true mo like contemporary development of uh, of sort of tasting spaces. So clearly, within you know five to ten years, um, I I'm not going to call Mount Etna Napa. It will never be that, but it will have all of these hospitality apparatuses in place that were totally absent before. Yeah, yeah, and uh, no, and I think. That's it's something that we ended up thinking about a lot and talking about a lot as we were traveling all, through all of these spaces because it's something that I think the people there are struggling with themselves and that is part of our kind of general line of inquiry, which is how do you find balance between having a 
a product, a, a place that can produce in some way, a series of products that comes from that place that have the quality and the excellence that you want to be able to share with the rest of the world. And that should have an economic remuneration that yes. should sustain that place, right? We want we want those things. We're telling people about these, you know, people, I think something uh, that, you know, you get this a lot. I know I get it a lot, you know, oh, why do you tell people about that? Don't you want to like keep it to yourself? Mm-hmm. No, on the contrary, right? I mean, we made a whole podcast about the things that we want you to yeah. go out and find. And we're telling you- yeah, It's actually you about, cruel yeah. Yeah, and exactly. selfish yes. <laughs> to want- a business to stay small. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? right, so there's that side of it, always. And also, as we're complaining about, uh, you know, over-touristed areas, the development of other spaces like this, you know, spreads the wealth literally and metaphorically, right? Okay, great. But the flip side is, well, what happens when, you know, growth becomes parasitic or cancerous at that point, mm-hmm. right? Too much that it begins. And so, you know, how do you, how do you uh, evaluate that? It's a hard, and I'm not proposing an answer here. Yeah. So it's a question that's guiding us as we're moving through these spaces yeah, and yeah. thinking about it. And right now, I was very happy to see everyone in and around Aetna doing well, you know, having mm-hmm. the products that they have been showing that care and respect for for so much time being rec- duly recognized and receiving remuneration and having the area where they live reflect that growth and and wealth in, that is not just an economic wealth, but also cultural richness. Yeah. Um, I, hope, I mean, I, I think hope that goes that way. I think for sure. Will. For yeah. sure. And something that, you know, we encounter all the time in Sicily is like a lot of the people doing business there are Sicilians, right? Yes. It's not like, um, it's not like Capri where it's like a zillion international hotels have some, something in the mix. Yeah, yeah. Although I have to say Capri has a lot of locally owned businesses. Um, yeah. It's not like, uh, you know, even in Rome, like the Via Veneto is dominated by hotel chains that are not uh, that do yeah. not have Italian owners. Yeah. Um, and so the benefit is is being diluted um, that way. In Sicily, it's kind of hard to walk in and start doing business yeah. for a number of reasons. Yeah. So, you know, even in Taormina, which is about to have a bunch of new, like very posh openings, a lot of the smaller hotels, cafes, bars, shops are owned by yeah. people from Taormina. Sometimes yeah. they own multiple different types of businesses, mm-hmm. like a restaurant and uh, and a bar and mm-hmm. a ceramic shop, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when you visit Aetna, do sort of acknowledge, especially if it's your first time, like kind of take note of how it feels. And then you can contrast that with, with your next trip. But um, I'm not going to say it's not a little... No, it's it's definitely nostalgic for me to remember my my first visits to Etna, where like everyone's tasting room was Kvox. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You would just go to this. It used to be like a pizzeria, trattoria. Now it's a little bit more refined. Yeah. Um, I'm not even sure they still do pizza, but they probably do. We had a phenomenal meal there. Actually, it was yeah. it was excellent. It's, yeah. it's definitely the best meal I've I've ever had there by yeah. far. Um, uh, there's now like a whole new cellar, and you know, people just used to like roll up. You'd go there to visit a vineyard, and you would see like six different winemakers at each table with visitors, mm-hmm. whether they were importers or distributors or just fans of the wines. Everyone kind of like met there, pretended they were all best friends, and then immediately went and go <laughs> went and spoke ill of each yeah. other behind their Gossiped, backs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was it was fun. It was I, I think you know that was um, all of this was a big learning experience for us. But it was a uh, that particular element of it was really interesting because we also saw a a really clear cultural social development happening before mm-hmm. our eyes, which is not something you can usually do in a kind of five to ten year window so so acutely. In yeah, any way. yeah, yeah. And I mean, in addition to the fact that obviously the the sort of businesses of Aetna are developing. In the meantime, so are so are the wines. You know, SHE opens in uh has their first harvest in 2013. Those wines are young yeah. still. Yeah. A wine from Aetna, a red or a white made from uh these grapes, especially the older vines with deep penetrating roots, can be cellared for decades if that's the sort of intention. Of course some winemakers are looking to put out ready to drink things and I mean Susu Karu is a great example like Frank Cornelison's very juicy super juicy wine yeah. line is meant to be like consumed pretty quick and I've actually cellared some Susu Karu it doesn't last in the cellar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's meant to be consumed within a, y- a year or two. Um but on the other hand you've got, you know, Benanti the OG um and many others who are creating wines that are meant to be appreciated decades after uh, they're bottled. Yeah. And even like, you know, Calabretta, um, I, I've never visited the Calabretta Vineyard, but... Yeah, we got to put that on the list, actually. Yeah, I'm, I yeah. really, really love those wines. Um, and, you know, like Massimiliano Calabretta had to exit from the Etna dock because he was cellaring his wines before bottling too long. And that for the Etna sort of judges yeah, and the doc judges yeah. doesn't conform was creating something that was sort of unrecognizable according to their criteria and it's like that's treating Norello Mascalese and Norello Capuccio like Nebbiolo which yeah. is exactly how it can be treated yeah. to have really sophisticated really complex uh, results absolutely absolutely and uh, these are these are wines that are doing all a lot of the things that we talk about, or I should say not doing, right? You know, not having a lot of intervention, not getting touched, not getting manipulated in any way, but are delivering really, um, you know, refined palates, which is an, another, you know, point in their direction if you want to talk about the ability to speak to a really wide audience. So, um, you know, we got, I think, um, both of us left with a feeling of general optimism and excitement still, even as we saw things developing at a relatively rapid pace. So uh, we'll we'll look forward to being back sooner and more often, I think, uh, because we feel like we have to keep up with it even more than than in the past. Absolutely. And if you are out and about in the world and you want to try some of the wines from Etna in addition to the ones that we've been talking about, uh, if you're in Australia, the UK, Japan, uh, or the US, finding the smaller natural and lower intervention Etna producers is going to be no problem. Of course, Frank Cornelison is widely distributed, Calabretta, Ivignetti, yeah. Uh, Eduardo Torres is starting to pop up here and there, which is pretty, pretty fun. Um, Palmento Costanzo, which I know you really love. Yeah, I love their wines, yeah. Um, and then the, the sort of uh, slightly larger productions, Gracci, uh, Tornatore, Tenute delle Terre Nere. Yeah, Terre Nere you can find anywhere. Yeah. Still, and still great it's stuff, great. absolutely. Um, I was going to add... Um, Vino di Anna. Yeah, yeah. Another a great example of a, yeah. a foreign woman, I believe, an Australian, mm-hmm. Australia, yeah, Australian woman. Her husband is um, French. They make wine. 
not far from a Belgian guy. And yeah. uh, there are lots of people from all over the world that saw the potential in this place, but also are really devoted stewards of of the terrain. Um, so look out for those wines. And look out for more episodes of Gola coming up. We're going to continue on our path of in and out of studio. So you'll hear more episodes where we cover products or ideas or themes the way that we have in the past, but also peppered in uh, some uh, recounting of when we are out and about in Italy going to find things like this for you. We have a few more adventures that are already under our belt that we can talk about and uh, some more on deck. So uh, in the course of this series, you'll hear all about that. Um, We have so much to cover still, but we're also going to, now that we're uh, officially on track to having some proper recording time uh, together, uh, return to some old classics too. So uh, remember to reach out to us. I'm at Dr. Caligari's cabinet. Katie, you're at? I'm at Katie Parla. Find us on our social media feeds. Tell us what you want to hear more about. We'll work it in. We always do. We love hearing from you. We love your support. Go to patreon.com backslash golapod to continue supporting us and learn more about us. Our wonderful continuing supporters, Mazulo, Samolina, Artisanal Pasta, uh, Fiorella, and uh, Gabe Del Virginia are all... And Fiona Fine. Oh, and Fiona Fine. I know. I forgot. We got, I can't She's believe. She's the best. The best. Uh, people jumping. We did a on... tour together like 12 years ago, maybe 15. Wow. Um, and we've been pals ever since. She's a wonderful, wonderful yeah. woman. These are people uh, coming in top tier and whose support is extra, extra special and extra appreciated by us. But that does not mean that we are not absolutely floored and flattered by all the support we're getting from everyone else. Keep up with us. We are going to keep creating more content for you, not just podcasts, not just collaborations, but more taste alongs, more and new exciting ideas coming at you all the time. Thanks again for listening. Arrivederci. Like and subscribe. Arrivederci.